Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Muse, the brain-sensing headband that helps you meditate. I'm Patricia Karpis, your host, along with my co-host every other week, Muse co-founder, Ariel Garten. We just launched a new Muse called Muse S, which features a comfortable, soft fabric headband. It gives you real-time feedback on your brain, heart, breath, and body during meditation, and also includes new features designed to help lull you to sleep. Check it out at choosemuse.com and use Untangle15 for your discount code. And if you've ever wanted to learn to meditate in a beautiful setting, check out the Do Nothing Leadership Retreat at donothingbook.com. It's five days in the Colorado mountains starting April 19th and is focused on learning to meditate so that you can be a better leader at work and at home. It's a great place to chill and learn. Former Untangle guest Rob Dubay is the founder and the reviews have been great. I'll be there this year leading the kickoff night, so I'd love to see you there. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Untangle podcast. Today, my guest is the phenomenal Professor Maya. Professor and Maya and I had the opportunity to meet last week when we were together on a panel for imposter syndrome at the Harvard Business School. So she and I sat there in front of an audience of packed packed room talking about imposter syndrome, what it is, and how to avoid having it. And she was so dynamic and spectacular, I needed to invite her on Untangle. What she talks about is confidence, and confidence is something that we can all use more of. And she looks specifically at language and the ways that we use language to actually undermine or support our own confidence. Because confidence is not something you just magically have. Confidence is something that you build word by word, relationship by relationship, action by action. So today, it is my joy and pleasure to welcome to all of you, Professor Maya. Hello. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you so much. It is such a joy to have you here today. And I should mention that you are a sociologist, PhD sociologist, and you're also a professor at McMaster University. And you wrote a book with possibly the coolest name ever. It is Hey Ladies, Stop Apologizing, and Other Career Mistakes Women Make. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about how you got into the world of confidence and why it is that you hate apologies. Sure. So this was a career path I had no idea I would be in. Five years ago, I attended an academic conference that completely and forever changed my life, changed my career, changed my research trajectory. And I was in the audience and there was about 500 of us listening to a panel discussion of four women. And these were women who were at the pinnacle of their careers. They were, some of them were my mentors. I knew these women and all they had to do was introduce themselves. And it sounds so simple. Just take the microphone and introduce yourself. And the first woman takes the microphone and she says, I can't believe you asked me here. I don't know what I could possibly add to this distinguished panel. And I was horrified. I was like, what do you mean you don't know what you could add? You've written five books. You're the world expert in this. And then I thought, oh gosh, well, maybe she's nervous. You know, academics aren't the most gregarious speakers. And then the second woman takes the microphone She said, and I mean, this is verbatim, I thought they sent the email invite to the wrong person. 
And everyone on the panel was like, yes, yes. Yeah, they were sort of nodding in agreement. And I was just aghast. I was like, no, stop this. And the third woman, fourth woman, I mean, Groundhog Day, same thing. And I attend. So that was a five-day conference. So there was about 25, 30 panels like that that I had to attend. And not once, not once did I hear a man speak in a way that minimized his knowledge or that downplayed his experience. And yet every single time a woman spoke at this conference, a deflection of praise followed or an apologetic tone, a minimization of her accomplishments. And oh my gosh, Ariel, I found it enraging, but I also found it heartbreaking because it was like this lightning bolt. It was as if it was only happening to me. And I remember looking around to the other people in the audience going, did you catch that? Did you hear that? Can you believe this just happened? And what I realized in that moment was, oh my gosh, this is exactly what my undergraduate students are doing, where they are prefacing a question or a statement with an apology, where they are in this chronic state of self-doubt. And then I thought, oh my gosh, it's along with sexism and racism and homophobia and all of that, we were really battling true inner barriers of self-doubt and a lack of confidence. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's women at the highest level of their careers along with the rest of us. And so that was it. I mean, from that moment on, I just switched. I changed everything and I became obsessed with apologies and trying to speak out about them, learn from other women. Why are we apologizing? Under what circumstances are we apologizing? That's really what started it all. Let's talk about apologies because most of the audience that listens to this are, we're all very into mindfulness and mindful communication. And of course, in mindful communication, you're aware of when you might have offended someone, you apologize readily to build a relationship, to demonstrate your deference and that you're not filled with ego. And you're kind of saying the opposite, that we should stop apologizing in a lot of ways. Tell me what you're thinking. Okay. So Canadian research out on shows that there is a gender difference between men and women and how they use apologies. So when both men and women deem an infraction to be apology worthy, they'll both apologize. So it's not that men are avoiding apologies, but they have a really high threshold of what they think deserves an apology. And women are the complete opposite. We have a much lower threshold of what we think deserves an apology. I mean, some of us are constantly on the lookout for how we can interject with an apology. And apologies matter, just as you were saying, they can make a difference. They can heal trauma and bring closure and calm a situation down and diffuse anger. And all of that is true, but we want to use apologies in a genuine manner. And we wanna use them intermittently, not just be throwing them out there. And apologies change how people perceive us. And I want to bring attention to how often and for what reason women are apologizing and over-apologizing. So I'm not advocating that we never apologize because a lot of people get angry at me when they hear this and they think, well, we're polite and we should be kind. And I'm not saying do away with them. I'm saying let's bring some awareness, some mindfulness to why do you feel the need to apologize in this particular situation? That's really relevant. So 
have been mentoring several classes of first-year university engineering students. And they come through my office kind of every week at this point. And I was sitting in one particular group that was four first-year male students and two first-year female students. And both the first-year female students, before they spoke, apologized. Apologized for speaking up, for drawing my attention, for taking up space. And it was as if they were apologizing for themselves, for being there. And it was the most painful thing. The men in the group just communicated what they had to say. They were also very nervous. Everyone was quite nervous in the group. But the women, quite nervous, both of them started with, I'm sorry, I want to say something. I'm sorry, and. And my heart just sunk. I was so sad for them. Like, why are you apologizing for speaking to me? And that's exactly what's coming through in my current research. So I'm doing a global study on women's confidence and apologies. And I have so far 11 countries participating, a plethora of different ethnicities and nationalities. And one of the questions I ask is, how do you perceive other people who apologize? Apologize unnecessarily. What is your immediate perception of that? And it's not good. Just as your heart stopped and you sort of were saddened to see the immediacy of the apologies come out. That's the perception of women across the globe. So the top five responses are, I perceive women who over-apologize as weak, insecure, doubtful, easily manipulated, and not leadership material. Ooh. Yeah. These apologies are not making us seem kinder or more polite or humble. They're making us seem incompetent. And who wants to take direction from a leader who seems incompetent? And that's really what I'm trying to bring awareness to is adding some breath and some space between the thought and the apology. And when you give it just a moment to breathe, most of the time you'll realize that the apology wasn't necessary and that maybe silence was enough. Or maybe you could have prefaced something into a statement. It, you can absolutely change out this apologetic lingo into something more confidence-inducing. Can you give us some examples? Because as you're talking about this, you know, I'm thinking about times when I would have naturally thought to apologize. Like you bump into somebody, and I'm Canadian, so you bump into somebody and you say, I'm sorry. Even if it didn't really matter, they bump into you and you say, I'm sorry. I sometimes start sentences with, I'm sorry when I'm about to explain something to somebody that they probably don't want to hear. And I think as a, particularly as a woman, I don't know what it's like being a man because I've never tried to be one. So I can only speak from my own experience. But as a woman, there's this sense that you are supposed to be a good girl. You are supposed to be somebody who wants to knit together relationships and solve things and make things better for people. And so the like deference of self is part of doing that in the way that I have been enculturated. Absolutely. There's a gender dynamic. There's a cultural dynamic. We seem to be the world's emotional caregivers. And we have been socialized into that caregiving mindset from a very early age where we're constantly encouraged and reminded to think about other people's feelings at all times. And we do that to the exclusion of our own feelings. And we use apologies as a way sometimes to slide in our opinions. Perhaps we grew up in a family or a culture that didn't encourage 
our opinions. And so we have to say, sorry, but I think this, or sorry, could I add this in? Yes, totally. Totally do that. Mm-hmm. Apologize before speaking. Yes. Or apologize. Wow. That's toxic. So, sorry. This is like, like, <laughs> oh, you just said, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I totally did. Yeah. I was apologizing for sharing the fact that I was overwhelmed by what you just said and wanted to reflect on how valuable it was. Mm-hmm. I was apologizing for thinking that what you were saying was valuable and sharing that fact. But do you see This how- is maddening <laughs> when you notice it. It is, it is. And undermining, undermining of the self, which it's supposed to do, but undermining the self in ways that are, we're not deserving of undermining. Absolutely, and it's also exhausting. It takes up so much mental energy, emotional energy, to be throwing out these unnecessary apologies for mundane issues. And sometimes we don't even realize it until the end of the day and you're exhausted, you're wiped out, and you don't even realize that apologies chip away at your confidence. They absolutely do. We use them to such a degree that we don't realize that we've prefaced dissenting views or differing opinions with an apology. Absolutely. Isn't that how you're supposed to do it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I disagree. Sorry, I have a different opinion. Sorry, can I jump in here? Sorry, can I interrupt? I'm going to apologize for being different than you right now, rather than simply owning the fact that we can be different and that's okay. Yeah. Wow. And so we can switch out those phrases. It takes time. I don't want to send us on this perfectionist cycle where we think we have to make all these immediate changes and do it perfectly, but it takes time, but we can absolutely rejig our communication pattern. So you brought up the example earlier. Somebody bumps into us. Instead of us, right? Instead of us apologizing, we can say, go ahead, your turn after you. Let's say you need to squeeze by someone. You need to reach in front of them for something. Instead of saying sorry, you can simply say, pardon me or excuse me. That works. You're absolutely going to still come off as polite and kind by switching out those phrases. Or a big one is sorry for complaining, sorry for venting, sorry for talking too much, sorry for whatever it is. If we could switch it out for gratitude, thank you. Thank you for listening. My goodness, thank you for letting me vent. Thank you for being such a good friend. Thank you for your patience. Those are all good ones. Mm -hmm. Before speaking, you could say, I would like to share something. Yeah, that works. Rather than apologizing for sharing something, you can simply state that you as a human would like to share something now. Yes, yes. That feels very different. And I mean, think about your communication with text messages or emails. What is the first thing that you text when you get a message and you can't respond right away? Sorry, in a whatever. Yeah, I've done that myself and then had to delete because I've said, oh, sorry, I was driving. Sorry, I was at work. What? (laughs) Like the expectation is that we are at work. (laughs) Right. They've just put themselves in the middle of your day and what you're doing and you're apologizing for not being immediately available. I'm sorry, I can't be everything that you want at every moment. Yes. And then along with the apology comes an unnecessary explanation. So we say sorry, and then we feel the need to justify why we couldn't respond with this long-winded explanation, justification of where we were or what we were doing. Oh, it's exhausting. Honestly, when I can't get back to somebody right away, I always say, thanks for waiting or thanks for your patience with this. That's it. And then just answer the question. 
So you're acknowledging that perhaps it took you a little bit longer than anticipated and you're expressing gratitude, but you're not putting yourself in such a passive position. So is this an issue that both men and women have? We've been talking a lot about women specifically, but can this apply to both genders? Right now, we have research that shows it is quite gendered and that women apologize more than men. I mean, imposter syndrome, perfectionism, confidence, those are all issues that both men and women face. But for right now, women seem to be apologizing more than men. So what are the guys doing? If they're not apologizing, what are they doing? They're just not viewing the situation in the same way. Sometimes the situation, they're not even recalling it. Other times it seems to them not even worthy of bringing attention to. A lot of women in my study are mentioning that men should apologize a little bit more alongside women not apologizing so much. So that's an option. (laughs) Can you give us an example of in a situation what a man might do and what a woman might do? Yeah. In any conference or meeting room, when there's a PowerPoint glitch, when there's a technological problem, when there's a Wi-Fi problem, usually the men acknowledge the problem and just state what's happening to solve it. So they state the problem and then state the solution. I mean, I've had women apologize for the Wi-Fi in a conference, so they have nothing to do. don't you do that? (laughs) Even though you have absolutely nothing to do with it? Exactly, exactly. You know, just little things that the food was late for a conference and women will apologize for that and the men will say, the food's running 10 minutes late. They just give us the information and we're on it and what can you do? Yes, at the women's conference at Harvard that you and I met at, they couldn't open the door to the dining room for the absolutely beautiful piece that they prepared for us. And the organizer was so apologetic that the conference door was stuck. So it's not her fault. (laughs) Technical glitch. Engineering was on it. Yes. She apologized multiple times. Yeah. When her attention did not need to be drawn back to the fact. Yeah. And so you're saying that when this happens, the person who is apologizing appears... Weak. Weaker, doubtful, insecure, confused, incompetent. None of the things that we want to be perceived as. None of the things that we'd want to be perceived as, nor none of the things that clearly applied to that Harvard Business School individual who was running the entire conference. Exactly. And I don't know how much people are connecting the link between apologies and then what this does to our confidence. Because it really does chip away every unnecessary mundane apology, chips away at our confidence. And confidence is a muscle. And the more you use it, the stronger it gets. And minimizing phrases and unnecessary apologies and chronic self-doubt, all of that stuff chips away at our confidence. So can you explain a little bit more how these minimizing phrases chip away at our confidence? Sure. So... These are the phrases that you would say, instead of just giving your opinion or asking a question or giving a statement, you would preface all of those things by the words, just, only. I have a little idea. I'm working on a small project. I'm not a total expert. This may sound silly. I might be wrong. I'm not totally sure. So all of these minimizing words or phrases are apologies without having said the word. And in essence, they all dim our light. 
because they create doubt where there was no doubt to begin with. And once that seed of doubt has begun, any mistake that you make, any little hiccup along the way becomes further evidence to ourselves of our own incompetence. And then that's how the imposter syndrome just keeps feeding itself. And then we just go round and round and round. And we don't simply apologize, we over-apologize to the point that it's become our habitual way of communicating. To the point where I mentioned at the Harvard panel that two women actually developed a Google Chrome plugin for this very reason. It's called Just Not Sorry. Take seconds to load into your computer and it basically will alert you to all the unnecessary apologies in your email. And then it will also underline in red or highlight all the minimizing phrases. So it'll pull out stuff like, I might be wrong on this. I'm not a total expert. I have a minor suggestion. This is just a thought. And then it will allow you to see all of it in an email and decide, okay, maybe I can take those 14 apologies out since the email is only five lines, right? So it's a technology tool that helps you be more mindful about your language. Yeah. So it's the more you use it, the more awareness you bring to it, the more conscious you are of hearing it within yourself and your own communication patterns, but also among all the women that you interact with. After every talk that I give, women come up to me afterwards and they said, now that I've heard it, I can't unhear it. I hear the apologies everywhere. And I encourage women to interrupt them. I mean, that's what I do. I interrupt apologies everywhere I go. I mean, uh, Starbucks, at the parking lot, daycare, school, grocery store, you name it, I will call out unnecessary apologies. I mean, I'll do it in a friendly way, so I'm not just jumping into strangers' conversations, but I'll sort of insert myself in a very humorous, lighthearted way. And I'll just say, oh, that's so interesting that you apologize for that. I study apologies. Why do you think you apologize for that? And 100% of the time, Ariel, 100% of the time when I interrupt an unnecessary apology and I ask the woman, why did you just apologize for that? She says, I don't actually know. I have no idea why I just apologized. And then we end up having a 10-minute conversation about it. But it's, that is how habitual it has become. Let's move for a moment to confidence. So if apologies are something that erode our confidence, what can we, both men and women, do to enhance our confidence? First of all, what is confidence? What actually is the definition of it? We all know the feeling of it, but how do you define it as a sociologist who researches this field? There's a few different definitions. One of my favorite comes from an educator and activist. Her name is Brittany Packnett. She did this great TED talk on confidence. And she says, confidence is the necessary spark before everything that follows. It is the difference between being inspired and actually getting started, between trying and doing until it's done. Confidence helps us keep going even when we have failed. That sounds really good. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Isn't that good? That's kind of everything. Yeah. That is kind of everything. So confidence, it's a feeling or a belief really that you can do something or that you can succeed in something. It means that you believe in yourself. It is such an important skill to develop. I wish we were teaching this in elementary schools to our boys and our girls because when that inner critic comes out and when the self-doubt starts, 
And when those automatic negative thoughts start messing with you, self-confidence is a buffer. It helps you develop some perspective and some reassurance in those moments when the self-doubt kicks in and when the ruminating takes over. So it helps you to not internalize your mistakes, your failures, or any negative criticism. It helps you get out of your comfort zone and take risks. It helps you to speak up and to voice your opinion and to try something new and to quite honestly stand up for yourself. Okay. So how do I get me some of that confidence? What are the things that you can do to enhance one's confidence? Before I answer that, let me just, if I could talk about some confidence myths. Sure. Okay. So one is that people are born confident and that is completely and utterly false. Confidence is a skill. You build it by practicing and it is not something that you either have or you don't have. It is something that you can always build on. I'm going to say something incredibly overly confident. I'm quite sure I was born confident. (laughs) Well, yeah, 10%, right? Probably 10%. Same. I'm an extroverted personality. I love public speaking, which is quite unusual because it's still one of the top fears that people have. But to get good at it, I had to practice, right? So all of that is a skill. I think another myth is that people think that if you are confident, you are always confident. And that's false. Confidence is completely fluid. It goes up and it goes down. You can have it in the morning and you can lose it by noon and you can get it back by dinner time. It goes completely up and down depending on the circumstance, the experience, the people that you're interacting with. I resonate with that. I definitely feel that experience of sometimes you're incredibly confident and sometimes it's just dissipates. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could be you're going in for an interview or you're going to land a new client or to get a new deal and you fumble your words and it didn't go as well. I mean, you started it off with a tremendous amount of confidence and then you could feel it leaving you in those moments. But then you build it back. You try to close your hands so the river doesn't run through your fingers. Please stay with me. Yeah. Don't run away now when I need you. Yes. Yes. And the more you plead, the further it goes. Yep. (laughs) Oh, and if you lose confidence, that's it. You'll never get it back. That's also false. Confidence can be grown at any age and at any stage in your life. One of the biggest myths is this fake it till you make it thing. And I really try to dispel that myth because you can't fake it. You have to practice it. You have to put the time and the effort to grow the skills that you don't have confidence in. So you can't just fake that. You build your confidence through action and then you feel confident later. Tell me more about this. Like, what are the skills? How do you practice the skill? What are the steps? What are the things that you do to enhance your confidence? Okay, so let's take public speaking, for instance, because I get asked about that a lot. Most people hate public speaking. They don't know how to get better at it. They get nervous. They have no self-confidence. And then when I ask them, well, what are you doing right now to build up your skill of public speaking? Most people say, well, nothing. I avoid it. (laughs) And that's what a lack of confidence does is it leads us to procrastination and avoidance techniques. So then you would take that public speaking that you have to do and you would compartmentalize it into small little steps. And so what's the first thing you need to do? Uh, let's say you have, to, you have to give a five-minute presentation at work. 
you break it down. What am I going to talk about for the first 30 seconds? Then the next minute, you break it down into these small digestible practices. Okay, then what can I do? Okay, well, I can videotape myself. I can practice that. Then I'm going to get somebody whose opinion I trust, who's not just going to be telling me what I want to hear. I need somebody who's going to tell me what I need to hear. Then I'm going to have them give me constructive, timely feedback. I'm going to work on using filler words and perhaps tone down my hand gestures. I'm going to work on my posture and all of that. And then I'm going to tape myself again. And then I'm going to practice it. And then I'm going to practice it again and again and again in low risk settings. So I'll practice it in front of loved ones and friends. Then I'll try practicing it maybe with one colleague at work. And then I'll do the meeting, let's say. Then immediately after the meeting where you've presented, you do a debrief. And that's what I do for all of my talks. Basically, my full-time job is giving talks about my work and confidence and apologies. And after every single one of my talks or TV appearances or podcasts or radio, whatever I'm doing, I do an immediate debrief within half an hour. My husband works with me full time. So he'll come with me and he'll sit down and he'll say, Oh, did you know you said the word, right? 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 17 times in that 15 minute podcast. <laughs> and oh, Okay, well, thanks. Now I need to change that. And we'll go through everything, my tone and my stories. And did I talk too long? And did I flub my words and all of that? And then I practice for the next one. And so it's just a constant cycle of practicing, practicing, practicing. Well, I have to admit, you sound incredibly confident. Your tone is very clear. Your choice of language is excellent. Your stories are highly cogent. And one would think, listening to you, this is an incredibly intelligent, which is true, and confident woman. And what I'm hearing is that confidence was literally built through practice. Absolutely. Deliberate. Deliberate practice. So you know you're focusing on a very specific skill set. And then you're getting timely, constructive feedback on your performance. You're assessing your results. You're making adjustments. And then you take action again. It's like a cycle. You take that action, whatever it is, you practice it. That's step two. Step three is you're getting that feedback, you're assessing your results. And then step four, you're making those little adjustments and then you're practicing it again. And you just do that again and again and again. Okay. So one way of creating confidence is by practicing. What are some other ways? Some other ways is how you deal with failure, because as you are practicing, whatever skill it is that you're trying to get better at, you will inevitably fail. So how do you deal with failure? One of my favorite quotes is from an entrepreneur and cook, B. Smith. Actually, she just passed away just this week. And she said, I climbed a mountain of no's to get to my yes. And that quote has stuck with me through all of my failures because I learned to reframe my mindset around failure. And failure really is just information. It's not weakness. And once you can reframe that as information, you learn to allow the space between the failure and yourself making the failure. Oftentimes, we're so hard on ourselves and we make a mistake and then we think we are the mistake rather than just looking at it objectively. And so I have been able to reframe how I deal with failure. So I guess the way that confidence loops in with regards to failure is somebody who is confident believes that a failure doesn't mean something about them. It is 
just situational, something that happened, it's information. Where somebody who doesn't have confidence may take that failure into them and believe that failure means something about them, that they didn't have the skills or capabilities or they were not able. Absolutely. It gives you a stronger sense of self. When you're confident, you know that that failure doesn't define you. You're also not swayed by others' opinions of you because you know who you are and what you stand for and what you believe in and the skills that you have. So in the domain of failure, somebody who typically is not confident and fails and feels like it is their fault, they are the weakness, not the action, could simply shift their mentality or perspective to see that actually the failure is just information, it's feedback, it's the environment, and not take it into be personal. And in doing so, increase their confidence. Exactly. I mean, confidence, it's also intertwined. It's interesting because, I mean, you think about it as something that's absolute. You have confidence or you don't. And here, confidence is merely a shift in perspective. Right. Confidence, gosh, it's so useful. It helps you deal with failure. It helps build your resilience because it's now giving you the tools and the skills and the coping methods to deal with these hurdles and these setbacks. It helps you deal with your own self-doubt and fear so that when all those automatic negative thoughts come into your mind, you can then tame your inner critic. You can shut down what I call the shitty committee. You can redirect to a positive self-statement. It helps build your motivation because confidence is a life skill that you build on by taking small daily steps, little risks, getting out of your comfort zone. Your goals get bigger, your motivation strengthens, you end up believing more in yourself, you develop the ability to say thank you when praised instead of minimizing any compliments you get. It's never ending, the benefits of self-confidence. Another one is that it helps strengthen our common humanity. I I mentioned self-compassion briefly uh, at the panel that we were on, but when you're confident, you can develop your empathy skills, your self-compassion skills. You can acknowledge that we all struggle. We all feel pain. We're all on this journey. We're all interconnected. We're all flawed, works in progress. And then you can let go of this idea of how things were supposed to be and recognize and acknowledge how things currently are. And self-compassion is intimately tied to confidence. That's really interesting because when we think about somebody who's confident, we often think about somebody who is not compassionate. I think we have a model as somebody who's confident as possibly even being narcissistic and compassionate people being people who are kind of selfless and connected to the other and therefore probably not confident. Yeah. So that's a good point because sadly that is true. When we see somebody who's confident or we hear somebody who speaks confidently, we can simultaneously appreciate that confidence at the same time that we are somehow judging them for perhaps being too much or veering into the cockiness or the narcissism. And unfortunately, we have to push back against that that idea that confidence is cockiness. And so one of the ways really is through self-compassion. And that has helped me deal with 
all my failures. Self-compassion has three components, right? So it's about self-kindness instead of self-judgment. It's about common humanity that I just mentioned, recognizing that we're all in this together. And then it's about mindfulness, where we can break that ruminating cycle where we're just repeating prior bad experiences in our minds. But the one that really, that I've been working on really is the self-kindness, right? So instead of self-deprecating jokes, instead of calling yourself names when you've messed up, instead of this constant, incessant self-criticism when you make a mistake or mess up, self-kindness is about recognizing our imperfection. And it's about being able to self-soothe in that moment and recognize not every single thing I do is going to be fantastic. Not every talk or podcast I do is going to be seamless. And that's okay. Not every lecture of mine will have students high-fiving each other and telling me how amazing I am. I am going to fail. I will mess up. Some of it will be public. And self-kindness is teaching me to be kind instead of judging. So it allows me to acknowledge what is without judging in that moment of chaos or sadness or failure. It's almost as if confidence plus kindness creates the sort of recipe for the perfect human. <laughs> because, well, because often when we see somebody as confident, we think they think they're better than us in some way or they're unapproachable. But when you have that mixture of confidence and kindness, that's like, that's the ultimate human. Somebody who is self-possessed, who is comfortable with who they are and what they do. They can have confidence, they can lead, they can direct, but they also do it with kindness and compassion and a caring for the other simultaneously. Yes. And you actually just reminded me of another myth is that we were just talking about this earlier, is that confidence can be perceived as arrogance or narcissism. And really confidence is you, it's me, it's anyone listening. And so we need to change our perceptions and our biases around who we think and what we think confidence sounds like. And confidence, again, and this is another myth, is not always loud or extroverted or dominant. Confidence can be introverted and it can be quiet. So it doesn't matter your personality type. You don't have to be an extrovert to have confidence. You don't have to be the one that loves the limelight. You can be the quieter, softer, introverted, shyer one, and you can still be brimming with confidence. So if you're going to speak to a group of people who might be listening to you right at this very moment, and you could speak directly into their ear and increase their confidence, what would you say to them? I would say, appreciate yourself. Appreciate and catalog your successes along the way. If there was one strategy that I could give, it would be that. It would be to catalog your accomplishments, successes, wins along the way. Because we forget. We forget how much we have done and how great we are and how far we've come. And I do this exercise with my undergrads and I do it in my workshops. I ask people to write down at least 10 things that they are proud of, that they have accomplished. But for the listeners, I would ask you to write as many things as you can think of over the course of a few days. And hopefully that list is pages and pages and go back as far as you can remember so that you can recognize your progress 
so that when you're having a bad day, when you didn't get that promotion, when you're feeling low, you can reread that list and remind yourself of your greatness. Remind yourself of your resilience and your grit to get you here. And if you want to take it a step up, try to link every accomplishment you've had with a personal characteristic. Sure, luck, timing, networking, connections, being there at the right time at the right place, that all has a part to play, absolutely. But it's a minor part. Let's say that's 10, 15% of why you accomplish something. Where's the other 85 or 90%? That was your intelligence. That was your perseverance. That was your grit. That was your tenacity. That was your kindness. You have these amazing characteristics that allowed you to work hard to get that accomplishment. So acknowledge that. That's great. I feel much better listening to you right now. (laughs) I feel inspired and motivated. So let's talk about the opposite side. So we have confidence, but we also have this jerky little voice inside our head that often erodes and degrades our confidence the inner critic. Can you talk about the role that that plays and what we can do about it? For some reason, we have this idea that if we are critical on ourselves, that it will somehow inspire change and motivate us to keep going. And there's absolutely no research, there is no study that shows shit-talking yourself is useful or moves you forward. It's not an effective motivator. The inner critic is constantly comparing you to others, assessing you, asking, are you good enough? Are you strong enough? Are you smart enough? But the inner compassionate person is asking you, is this good for you? Are you building yourself up or are you tearing yourself down? And being aware of that negative voice is so critical. It is so critical to changing our confidence. So in my therapy practice, I used to teach people to kill the inner critic. And we'd be talking about the inner critic, you know, that little voice in your head that's constantly telling you things about you that are not true and not helpful. And we'd talk about turning it down and getting rid of it. And invariably, this point would come when people would say, but don't I need it? Aren't I supposed to have it? They believe it was the thing that motivates us, just like you said. They believe you need to constantly be pushing yourself to be better by telling yourself bad things about you and your work products all the time. And so I'd give them a little example. I'd say, imagine you're eight years old and in your bedroom and a voice calls to you and it's the voice of your mother saying, clean your room. It's a mess. It's awful in there. Make your bed. And so how do you feel when you hear that voice? Terrible. (laughs) It's awful to hear. What do you do? Well, you probably clean your room and make your bed because you're going to get in trouble if you don't. How do you feel while you do it? After you've cleaned your room, you feel better. But while you're cleaning your room with this like terrible voice pushing you on. Oh yeah. You feel awful. You feel vulnerable. You probably feel a little ashamed. You feel angry. (laughs) Yep. And then when you're done cleaning the room, you probably don't feel great and you probably don't feel great about doing anything else. You think you've used it to motivate you, but ultimately it has sapped you of your motivation. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we look at this from a different perspective and you come into your room and you say, gosh, it's kind of messy in here. And rather than berating yourself for it, rather than using a voice in your head to 
tell you bad words as you know that this is a pigsty it's going to be embarrassing it's awful you instead come in and say wouldn't it be wonderful if it was clean how do you feel as you're cleaning i think you would feel lighter you would feel a little more at ease yeah you'd probably actually feel great because it's a choice that you made and it's a thing that you're doing to make your room nice and then after your bed is made and your room is sparkly you look around and how do you feel good yeah you feel proud of what you've accomplished you feel energized. You feel ready to take on the next task. And so we think we need this voice criticizing us and pushing us to do stuff, pushing, 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 because it's going to make us motivated and do better. It doesn't. It invariably makes the work product worse. It makes us feel worse about ourselves, and it drains us of all of our energy and motivation. And if you instead drop the negative self-talk and choose to do things out of a desire to make things better, a desire to make it nicer, a desire to see what you can do and what's possible, then it all becomes very easy and the motivation spirals upwards. Yes, yeah, studies show that self-critics actually procrastinate more and they make less progress towards their goals because they're just completely in this realm of negativity. When... Instead, if they were just kinder to themselves, they would see an opening. They would see a solution. Wow. I didn't know that piece of research. Mm -hmm. Research is so overwhelmingly bad for our criticism. And yet so many of us engage in it as a motivator. I mean, 87% of us are kinder to other people than we are to ourselves. I mean, can you imagine Speaking to a colleague or a friend the way we speak to ourselves sometimes when we mess up, we would have no friends at all. Can you imagine? <laughs> and like, since we were just at Harvard with all these undergrads and MBA students, can you imagine if, if we found out one of them didn't get into the MBA program and we were like, oh my gosh, you, of course you didn't get in. You're a loser. Everyone knew you wouldn't get in, right? Like, it would be devastating. Nobody would want to hang out with us. But yet, this is what we have on this constant loop in our heads. So who do you want? Who do you want in your mind? You want an ally or you want an enemy? And we can always have the choice. The choice is there. We can choose kindness or we can choose judgment and criticism. Okay. I have this awesome process for killing the inner critic that is too long to do right now. So I'm going to put it in another podcast and release it at the same time as this episode. So anyone listening? There will be another podcast after this called Killing the Inner Critic, and it is a six-minute exercise that is going to walk you through taking that jerk inside your head, throwing it on the wall, squishing it, and sending it away once and for all. It's going to show you how awful it is to say the same things that you say to yourself to somebody that you love. Because when you finally do that, man, does that feel gross, yet you allow yourself to say these things to yourself constantly. So next episode, it'll drop the same day killing the inner critic, do it. It'll change your life. So that's a really great exercise. I hope everybody follows up with that additional podcast to learn about that. And I have a few other exercises to help develop our self-compassion and tame that inner critic. And one would be to find the silver lining. It sounds very simplistic, but we have to teach ourselves to find that one good thing, that one lesson. So for every failure, what was the one thing that you learned? And I have a little bit of a failure journal where I write down my biggest hurdles and then I write down the one thing that it taught me. So what did I learn 
and how would this failure help me moving forward? Another tip would be gratitude, gratitude journal. I'm sure everybody listening knows the research on gratitude. We know that gratitude leads to living a happier, longer, hopeful life. And gratitude, just like confidence, can be learned. It can be learned. So you can buy a new journal, just like I did. I went to the bookstore and I got a very fancy gratitude journal and it's very simple. Actually, I got two because I couldn't decide. And one in the morning and one at night. And it's just write down two things that you are grateful for and something that you're looking forward to. And then at night, what were you grateful for and what did you learn? And it takes two or three minutes and I've actually started it now with my seven-year-old. We don't do it every night. We can probably get to it every other night. It takes a few minutes and we've been doing it now for six or seven months. And I think now these seeds of uh, compassion that I've been planting are finally starting to come to fruition. So that's great. So techniques to deal with the inner critic, self-compassion, awesome exercise to kill it, looking for a silver lining, and gratitude. Yes. That's wonderful. So you've given us a host of things to do to improve our confidence. The first one being an understanding that confidence is something that can improve and it's a skill that we can build. Exactly. Yeah. Confidence is a muscle. Confidence is a muscle that strengthens with use. And if you're not flexing it, it's going to atrophy. So we have to use these techniques and these strategies that we spoke about today. Find which one works for you. Try them all. And this is how we build our confidence day after day. Okay. So where can we find out more about you and more information on how to build our confidence and be mindful about our apologies? Sure. So you can check out my TEDx talk, How Apologies Kill Our Confidence. That's the title of it. You can go to my website for all information about what I do or my upcoming talks or my research. And that is professormaya.com. And Maya is M-A-J-A. You can check me out on social media at Professor Maya. Thank you, Professor Maya, for being with us today and for giving us a little jolt of confidence and the confidence to believe that we can be confident. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ariel. My pleasure. Have a wonderful evening. That was the awesomely confident Professor Maya. You can find out more at ProfessorMaya.com. That's Maya, M-A-J-A. You can also find her book, Hey Ladies, Stop Apologizing and Other Career Mistakes Women Make at your favorite bookseller. Now, we've released a second episode this week, and that is me narrating my favorite super awesome exercise to help you kill the inner critic. So load up the next podcast, that's Untangle, Kill the Inner Critic, Take 10 minutes of your time when you have a few moments, actually do the visualization, kill your inner critic, and use the technique over and over again to quiet that jerky little voice inside your head. And if you want more tools to help you quiet your inner critic and build your confidence, use the brain sensing headband that helps you meditate, gives you real-time feedback on your meditation to help you manage your mind and help you sleep more effectively with Muse S. You can find out more at choosemuse.com. Have an awesome day. Feel awesome about yourself because you are awesome. This episode is all about confidence. Confidence is something you build, so don't push away the compliments. Feel great about yourself. Have a phenomenal week. And we'll be back to my next week with more Untangle. Untangle.